0: Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats. In an ongoing cyber war, it's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson.
1: Welcome to the show, Cybersecurity America. I'm your host again, Joshua Nicholson. Today's episode is on threat intelligence in the enterprise and in small businesses. It was always fascinating about understanding what the attackers are doing before they do it. What does threat intelligence mean to us and how do you utilize it? What benefit does it have in a modern day enterprise? And what should you focus on if you want to have a threat intelligence program, you don't really know where to start? You're still trying to understand what's good, what's not, what does good look like, what is a low-level maturity, what should I invest in, that kind of stuff. Give you some real-world experience. And so today's topic, we're going to talk about that 2022 look back on threat intelligence. Uh, What did we get right? What did we miss? We're going to do an overview of the intelligence world and history. Describe how we can improve on strategic and tactical intelligence consumption, and then what's the difference between the two? And then the next topic we get into really is the 2023 strategic roadmaps. And this is where we have the horizon outlook. What's everybody focused on when it comes to threat intelligence? What are some terms and acronyms that are used? A lot of times there's acronyms that are thrown around in all kinds of different environments. What are some of the acronyms that are very specific to um, threat intelligence? And then talk about the solar winds, a lot of these celebrity vulnerabilities that we've seen and how did threat intelligence play into those and how was it able to get us around the corner What are the big predictions, like threat intelligence is predicting we're going to have attacks in this area? Kind of what is that giving us from a prediction model? The first thing I want to do is introduce my two guests. Both have uh, government experience. The first one is Aaron Beerlin. Aaron is an intelligence analyst with over 13 years of experience. Aaron is the capabilities leader over at Deep Seas, Cyber Threat Intelligence, CTI. So Aaron began his intelligence career in the United States Army, where he served in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation New Dawn. Aaron's military intelligence experience and focused was on intelligence driven operations, had aided several large clients to transition their intelligence program into innovative threat informed industry leading organizations, and helping to prepare for the threats that they will face in the future. Our second guest is Nate Vidal. Nate has over 22 years of combined senior military, cyber, and consulting and program management experience within cybersecurity. He's familiar with delivering strategic client solutions in ever growing mission space. He specializes in driving innovative cybersecurity solutions across multiple capabilities to include strategy design and implementation of cyberfusion center capabilities. And so what is a cyberfusion center? Cyberfusion center is a capabilities that are fused together from a cyber threat intelligence or threat defense operations, RTDO, attack surface reduction, I call ASR, enterprise risk management, as well as cybersecurity strategy supply chain incident response. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Aaron, Nate, so glad to have you.
2: Thanks for having having me on, Josh.
1: So Aaron, what didn't I cover in your bio? I know both of you have done some high-speed, low-drag stuff in your career. So you want to get a little bit more background on who Aaron Beerlin is?
2: As the resident intelligence guy for a lot of companies and stuff, my most largest pride was Doing a lot of training in the military, in the army is training up new intelligence analysts. That's kind of like my passion project when working in this industry is bringing up kind of that new blood, but also having the ability to work with army cyber command as it stood up and developed its own um, cyber center and became an actual combatant command and working under the current director of the NSA, General Nakasoni, and being able to brief and work with him. That was my first real experience out of the military and going into cyber that shaped a lot. And so it gave me a lot of really good context, a lot of fun stories, of course, and all of that. But for the most part, I'm just the nerdy intel guy hanging out in Virginia. You know, that's about
1: it. Nerdy intel guy in Virginia. Love it. Nate, why don't you give us a little more information on your background? You know, there's a lot of different areas and, and cover points, but you know yet again, the majority of my career
3: began uh, wearing a uniform service, supporting you know many aspects of the cyber domain that kind of really prep me to kind of get to the stage and where I'm at right now. The thing that we've learned a lot is you really got to become that subject matter expert in many of the places that you get into and training the next people that kind of come behind you so that they are prepped to kind of take on the baton and kind of take off from you because you're really not going to be there forever. As I went down to many places, saw many things uh, when it came to the cyber battlefield, I would say, you know, tremendous amount of great mentors, trainers that allowed me to then train other people and then allowed me to really get to the point where I am right now. So big shout out to many folks at many three letter agencies who have really took care of me along the way and then put me where I'm at right now. So great to be here.
1: Does it help working at the NSA and doing these different high-speed, low-drag things and then going to the civilian world? Is it kind of like a huge disappointment going, oh, man, we don't see this or do this anymore, and I'm just so limited? Is it really kind of a culture shock?
3: I would say it wasn't tremendously shocking. What I felt was, was shocking was just the processes. I felt like the importance drivers that was driving private industry, aside from public, was the one thing that you know, I had to kind of get my mind wrapped around. Obviously, when you come from a federal side, DOD, uniform service, you have the things that are promoting what your mission focus is going to be, what we're all doing here, and we all understand what that mission focus is. And then when you take that hat off and take the uniform down and get into the, the civilian sector, you know that's when things are very different. And it's just about adapting. But the problem-solving mindset that we all adjust to and understand that we're taught, you bring into that landscape. And what I've found is that it's a bit of a refreshing situation. You know many folks do enjoy the breadth of what we bring to the table when it comes to problem solving and understanding many different problem styles. you know every journey to get to maturity or get to a benchmark is all different, and we've had the benefit of just bringing that problem solver mentality was was the one thing that I felt, even with the change, it was still a positive situation. It worked out really well for me.
1: You know, going from the NSA or going to the military to the civilian world, there's a lot of things that transfer over. You want to feel that, man, the the NSA should have a good handle on it. But in some cases, they're struggling, too, as well, like anything that's going digital and the use of encryption. and, And it makes you feel like even if they're struggling with it, no wonder we're struggling with it in the civilian worlds when we don't have nearly as much resources or tools and so forth. That kind of leads us into Aaron. I was gonna ask about 2022 look back on the threat landscape. What did we get right? What did we miss? We saw things like solar winds and log four J and just kind of a lot of stuff that's happening at that time. But what was kind of some things that you noticed from the 2022 threat landscape, some of the things that we learned that we can glean from for the future here.
2: Twenty twenty-two was a really great example of how great this industry is and how supportive it can be and collaborative. It is across all organizations. And Log4J was really a good example of that. And solar winds in its own right, given that Log4J occurred and it was around the holidays, if everyone wants to remember. And so people were working with skeleton crews, but you saw threat researchers coming out, people were sharing as much information as they could. And there was this almost massive effort, you know, regardless of who worked for whom and, and all of these other situations. Where we were just constantly updating our clients and customers with new mitigations, new movements that we were seeing. But it did highlight, you know, a big problem that we have in the supply chain. And we do know that organizations are concerned about supply chain risk management. And Log4j was a really great highlight of that. This was a vulnerability first. That was then exploited, and it follows the pathline that we at our organization recognize as being 48 to 72 hours. That vulnerability comes out, you've got that much time before it starts getting actively targeted by threat actors. And that proved fairly positive with Log4j, but we did see a lot of that. And that's a lot of what we got right. We got right the reaction to it, the information sharing, the opening of the floodgates and the supporting to help everyone try to mitigate a threat. What we didn't see was competitiveness and blockades being put up and companies attempting to you know, rise above the fray. We didn't see any of that. That makes this entire culture and cybersecurity a really great industry because of that. Things that we did miss that does somewhat connect to solar winds was Russia. How did we miss the aggression that we saw come in Ukraine? All of the signs were there But how many organizations were caught flat footed when Russia invaded Ukraine and then you had industries that had offices in there, activism targeting their senior executives and CEOs and and then people not knowing the plan? What do we do if we have to break off any of our network communications within Ukraine or even within Russia? How do we respond to a massive geopolitical event like this? without properly understanding and having that playbook. But in reality, this aggression is years old. And it's part of the problem with having too much of a focus. When you just say the word cyber, you think it has to be bits and bytes and you don't realize there's people behind those keyboards. There's nations influencing these decisions And there's an entire geopolitical aspect and a holistic approach that people can take to intelligence to better inform their customers and their clients out there on what's going on in the world and how it's going to affect you next week and next year and next decade. And we can do that. And that's normal intelligence, but it's just not something that's been fostered well within the community. There's been too much of a technical focus and not enough of a holistic focus throughout these programs.
1: That's a good point. Nate, do you have any thoughts on that as well?
3: Aaron's not wrong. I can call out specifically when Log4J actually came out. I was in a grocery store and you, Josh Nicholson, gave me a call to jump on with a very high profile client that we had to run down an event that we were soon to find out that was Log4J. And we hit boots on ground and had reaction and took our process For what we had, which was very mature and was able to stay ahead of the curve. Whereas I saw many other clients struggle with understanding how to identify, struggle with understanding the footprint. You know, the biggest thing that I get day in and day out from CISOs all the way down to technical experts is what does our actual footprint look like? And oftentimes, you know, your maturity model is really going to dictate what that answer is. And when you have these instances of celebrity based vulnerabilities that pop, with proof of concept shortly after, oftentimes that question is a great question to ask, but it's oftentimes too late. So you're playing a reactionary game to try to mitigate what these things look like. What I will say is that Aaron's profile on global events when it comes to Threat and Tell spanning outside of the technical field is a big deal. I eat up Threat Intel that talks about geopolitical events. What does the landscape look like outside of the technical field? I care about that type of stuff because it helps me what we should be thinking about progressively. When I got to get in front of a CISO and tell them why this technical thing matters, but also some historical intent behind it that really captures an audience so much more than, well, this is a bad vulnerability. Well, this is also a bad vulnerability with an intent from a nation state that could go far, far worse.
1: Two of the benefits I saw of threat intelligence, we saw real world was, and you know a client we're talking about where it was a big pharmaceutical and Log4j was pervasive in their environment. But we were really confused at the time whether, and I don't know if remember what the version number was, like 1.118 or 1.119, whatever it was. Yep. 1.118 mm-hmm. was supposed to be patched and fixed, but you can still obfuscate the attack and it still works successfully on one eighteen. And so now you we went through a massive, now you're going to put one nineteen, But we were relying on vendors telling us that and this is where we used one of our tool sets, breach attack simulation, where we attempted those log4j exploits on those machines and we were able to tell, was it vulnerable? Did we get a positive response back? Yes or no? And I think that active testing is where we were to say, no, it's, it's still a vulnerable. We still need to patch it. And then we had some frustration from infrastructure people going, what, patch it again? It took me a week to go patch it. And so not knowing that version was still vulnerable and having to patch it, it, was just a real kind of nightmare. So I think what we recommend to a lot of our clients is you want to be able to adapt to these environments uh, or these changing events. A is inventory is key. You got to know you can't protect what you don't know exists. So having that CMDB, understand what your technology assets are, where uh, Log4Js have even installed that. where do you have Java even installed that. I think all these become very important. It's really hard for threat intelligence people, it's really hard for incident response people to compensate for lack of information of what the landscape looks like. You could say, hey, our scanners are not seeing any of this type of host open or this vulnerability, but just not really having that inventory it causes some difficulties as well as knowing when to push the button on a vulnerability. You you may have something that's a high risk and it's a CVV 8 or 9 or or whatever, pretty high score. At the same time, is it our only exposure deep down in some piece of infrastructure that's on manufacturing that would never see the light of day anyway? So yes, it's important to patch it, but the probability of exploiting that where in its current environment is almost nothing, uh, you'd have to have physical access to one of the plants. So you have to put in that perspective. And I think that's where IT and the other business lines want to hear they don't want to hear that we just took some list from Microsoft that said this was critical and we're going to force an implementation or patching of that in some production systems and boost them up unless we got this right. And if we have this right and we understand it and there's some risk analysis towards it. I mean, the second event where I saw threat intelligence really helped. We were at the CISOs meeting, and she was discussing uh, ransomware protection and so forth. And I had just gotten an uh, intel brief, and I think it was from Aaron on one of our intel briefings. And it said that ransomware actors were targeting victims who did not pay to have their data restored, and so performs a denial of service on that company. And I remember... Going through that with the CISO and saying, yeah, we, we, we see this as a trend. Our threat intelligence team picked that up as a 10. I, I'm just curious. What is your denial of service control capabilities? Do you have anything that's there? And you got to remember this is very large pharmaceutical. So tens of thousands of employees. So big infrastructure. So what are you going to do if, if that's hit with a denial of service? And she said well, let me hold up. I'm going to go back and I'm going to find out and went back and found out from the project teams that. They had one on the books, it got delayed for whatever reason, and it did not go production. Uh So she immediately ordered the team, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. We're going to pay for this. Let's implement this solution. Three months later, they stood it up and it was live for two days when everyone got hit with like an 88 gig denial of service off of one of the main towers. So it brought down all access to O365. It brought down access to a number of different major cloud platforms because of all the internet connectivity that came out of that tower. And I think they were able to activate it and start mitigating and scrubbing that DDoS within about four to five hours. It could have come up quicker, but it wasn't tested for the solution to come up. There's GRE tunnels that have to be established. And when you're under heavy load, it can't establish these GRE tunnels. And so it was really hard to get it up and running. But once it was up within that four-hour time period, it was mitigating an eight-gig denial of service. Saved us. Saved the company. And it was all because there was a threat intelligence brief that came to someone who is on the cybersecurity team, who's running the Cyber Fusion Center. And it was actionable to me and came up in conversation. So that's a prime example where threat intelligence could just help me find some IOCs of something that's in the past that something happened. And so it's a terrible way of looking at it. And it's so rudimentary in that way. But how does it help me navigate future disasters is kind of my thoughts. Have you all run into that experience too, where threat intelligence actually came up and saved the day? I would always say that we've <laughs> saved the day
2: all the time, but that's because I was the guy doing it. <laughs> It's interesting because to the point that you just made, the example that you just gave, there's an organization. uh, It's not one that we work with, but it was partnered with one of our clients. So you know, wanting to take a look at that potential third party that just had this happen. Uh, They had a ransomware incident and the ransomware operators knew that they contacted law enforcement and they immediately moved to a DDoS. And so having people be aware of that absolutely is something that's a good way to have someone rope in. But- to what you were saying when we were reviewing what was going on with Russia and Ukraine there were a lot of briefings and a lot of questions that came out on what other geopolitical events do we need to be concerned about and so we have seen organizations move towards that and been able to inform them to have them prepared for situations like what we saw in the future of you know just recently whether it be some of the protests that happened in China or uh, some of the events that are happening in South America, that's a point where we've been able to really get ahead of it and really prepare customers and clients for understanding those movements. But it can also just be, the best example I can give is how often we look. When I was at Army Cyber Command, we read news all the time. That was, you don't just sit there, there's no downtime. If you're not making something, you know, read through and one of my analysts at Army Cyber Command looked up at me and I'll always remember it and said, there's something wrong with the national health system in the United Kingdom. That's weird. And so we said, well, we need to start taking a look at it. And I don't know if anyone remembers, that was the first big victim of WannaCry. And so because of that situation, because she had you know, got eyes on that quickly and we really started digging. And of course, we had the wonderful connections of the government. We started seeing it. And at first they thought it was like a ransomware event or something, but we were immediately informing people that a large government entity had gone down. We weren't sure why, but we really needed to start taking measures to get ahead of it. And because we were just that little bit more advanced and ahead of the curve, it really helped us prepare our command and our leadership for the oncoming weeks and weeks of briefings and mitigation and work just to ensure that we were not hit by something like that.
1: That makes sense. And Nate, when we look at the world of intelligence and analysis, and I'm not just talking about cumit and Cignet and all that kind of stuff, but more of on the cyber side of this, where as an organization, what makes sense? Let's just say I'm 2000 employees. What makes sense? What does a rudimentary cybersecurity program, I guess, look like? What should I focus on first? What does kind of good look like? Everybody who may be listening here says, you know what, I want a threat intelligence program. I want to do better. Where do I really start from? Do I do it from a tactical have a tip and deployed and I want to deploy IOCs or should I hire one? I mean, obviously we're prone to the hire model because that's what we do. And we assist customers and not too many of our customers have full threat intelligence teams themselves. They use people like us to do that. But if you had to advise that head of security that just came in and was been told by the board, hey, you need to invest more in a cyber threat program, what would I do? What would be the first things I should look for? That's a real good question because we've been talking
3: about journeys between you, you and myself and, and our teams. Of what does a cyber journey look like? And, and what I would say is that everyone's journey is just a little bit different. It's just based on you know their priorities, benchmarks, what a board wants, what stockholders want to pursue. And what I would say is that if you're getting into the realm of where you're trying to identify what to do next, probably asking yourself that question as you're trying to go on your own maturity journey. And you want to kind of get out of the reactionary basis, SOC, where you're getting alerts in. There's little to no contextualization behind it. Uh, we really can't really capture why it's happening. We, we know the alert's there. We know why it's coming from. But there's really nothing behind it. We don't have any association for it. There's no enrichment. And you want to kind of take your model and your SOC to what is it going to look like next? You know, I need to get more threat and form. And that's usually when I talk to folks and suggest what should be coming next. I always leverage, you need to bring on a threat intel capability that one's going to leverage a tip, which is natural, you know, a good threat informed platform is is great, but also kind of getting that understanding that we need to kind of take what they're bringing to the table, making it relevant, you know, to what the business model needs to look like, and what they want to see, you know, obviously, everybody has what threat informed things they want to see based upon their business model. But taking that bridging an assessment and understanding what they want to see out of it, building out what it looks like for them and then building unique use cases that's going to give them that contextualization across, not just telling them what they should be focusing on, what tradecraft threat actors are doing that could theoretically be affecting their agencies or their products, but also informing a company at large. What I've noticed is as the maturity model grows, the threat intel that is provided stems across an entire enterprise and it goes far and wide and it informs culture. These are the things we should be paying attention to, X, Y, and Z, because of this third party, because of this ransomware attack, because of this nation state action. This is why we need to focus on this stuff. This is why we need to be informed to make a decision. The CISO back channels, uh, if you will, are very informative when it comes to understanding you know needs, when it comes to what people are talking about, and understanding why it affects your company and why it is necessary at many levels of the journey. One, it keeps you in the mode of growing with something that's going to grow with you. And having a threat intel program that starts off small and, and informative, that grows into flash notifications, niche alerting that we can create and give to threat detection engineers, to then theoretically publishing out to ISAC, being the tip of the spear. We are the focal point because we see this on a scale that surpasses many others. And then you become the people that people want to look to for this intelligence. And that's when you know you've you've hit a really awesome peak. You're the informer.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. Aaron, anything from your perspective?
2: It's a real hard thing. Everybody has their own thing that can fit. And, you know, step one is how do you educate your workforce? Because you know, nobody wants to say this, but your workforce is your primary vector of approach for threat actors. That's it's still the most successful way for threat actors to access your network is through spear phishing emails, SEO poisoning, and your employees being socially engineered and clicking a bad link or opening a bad attachment. You know, step one is figuring out where to get the good information that you need and then how to inform your workforce to make sure that you reduce that attack surface as much as possible. But secondarily, is understanding what your actual landscape is. You know, you read a lot of headlines. And so every big headline, when you see it on all the major publications, you think this must be my top problem. Everyone's talking about this malware. It must be my top problem. But that's not true. You need to do, we call it a threat landscape. We honestly just stole the concept from the military because that's where Nate and I caught our teeth and grew up. It's called intelligence preparation of the battlefield. You need to know where you're at. Where are you on the map? Who are your peer organizations? What's hitting them? Historically, what has affected your industry vertical? Just because Facebook and Twitter or whomever is saying that this is the biggest threat to you, our biggest threat out there, it may not even be looking at you. That could be attacking banks and you could be an auto manufacturer. You need to know what your landscape is because While you're looking at the big celebrity over there, someone's going to sneak in that back door and they're going to take down your organization just the same. And you could have caught it if you just paid attention to where you fit and who's targeting you specifically.
1: And do you find most customers have a hard time really seeing the value of intelligence? I mean, obviously, all three of us are military, I'm Marine, your army, he's Navy, uh, and we have Air Force guys. So we got all four branches. It's real real interesting because we all get along. We don't kid each other and beat each other up too much. But I think threat intelligence and all is understood in the military context, but not really in the civilian context really at all. Um, A Marine would never consider going and hit a target in combat without having an intelligence assessment on how big that target is and what's the difficulties I'm going to reach and how many, you know, and just knowing so you just don't go into a situation and you get wiped out. And so I think sort of the same thing is prevalent throughout the military, but not always as prevalent in the civilian world. They don't think the first thing I'm going to do before I go into this area, this geo or whatever, I'm going to do a threat assessment. Uh, if anything, it's more of a business risk assessment. I might get sued. What are my labor laws? I mean, they take it from that. But as far as operating environment that we have, like some customers are American companies that want to work in China. Well, how do we protect them from the Chinese government that uh, may not always have their interest at heart? And so how do you do that while balancing and focusing the organization and just being a part of it? I think sometimes you don't have threat intelligence guys are there with the executives always helping to make some of those decisions. And I really think that's a mistake. I think some of the risk assessments you see done and, you know, in my background, I worked at uh, Ernst & Young. I was at Wells Fargo as a group information security officer. So I've been leading cyber teams for a long time. And I will notice that a lot of times the strategy and the risk management functions don't take threat intel into account at all. It was more of the control says it's supposed to do X. So I'm going to test to see if it does X. If it does a little bit of X and a little bit of Y, I'm fine. So they've never really taken. It was more from a compliance approach that they would think that they're doing risk management and never take into account real threat intelligence on that area. That's where I see a big difference of it. And I just don't think there's enough companies that are leveraging threat intelligence in a good way because of those deficiencies. They just don't really understand how would I use it other than in a tip format, because it makes sense where I would have some detection and analysis done. I'm pulling it apart. I find that is bad. I want to create some indicator of it. I want to be able to tell the entire world. How do I do that? I tell it via some IOC distribution, some data uh, push that's a part of it. But how does that actually play in everything else you do? I think it's just underutilized in the industry. Some of the other things for the year, what do you think we got right? What do you think we got wrong, Aaron? If you had an approach that says, you know what, I would love for most of our customers to start doing X or a lot of people in the industry start doing X, I think it would have a huge improvement from a short-term maturity perspective versus something strategically you should be looking to do this. And that's like a two, three year roadmap. But what should I kind of focus on first? Have those pieces in place before the bigger strategic ones.
2: I think that what a lot of parts of the industry are getting right is they understand the, you know, concern over identity management and cloud. They at least understand that this is something that needs to be focused on and and that it is a, an attack vector that needs to be considered. And there's obviously always benefits and that's going to be a big part of 2023 as well as moving forward with a lot of those types of solutions as everyone moves even more. And there's more offerings and abilities of what exists for cloud management and identity focus. But what people get wrong still historically is once you have your organization focused on being able to get good threat intelligence and contextualize threats, You have to understand that really leaning forward is also understanding everything else that is also out there. Like step one, when developing and maturing your organization is knowing what's targeting you, but that doesn't stop there to get ahead of the curve on a lot of these things is knowing how ransomware operators are changing their tactics, techniques, and procedures How are nation states moving their focal points and what are they targeting? Because one of the biggest problems we have when maturing organizations and where I think they get a lot of it wrong is they want to demand, how does this apply to me? I only want to know if it affected my peer. I only want to know if it affected my industry. And it's like, but you're at a point now where you can get ahead and you can be that tip of the spear. You're not going to do that if you're only caring about you and not watching how your enemy I'll say it that way, is developing. And that's where a lot of people miss it, is threat intelligence doesn't start at looking at your organization. It looks at the enemy. That is our job. Our job is to understand your adversary and then understand how that adversary can affect you. It's not the other way around. You have plenty of people that are looking inside your wall. You need point. me looking outside of it.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think over the years, it's really morphed into a lot of different aspects where um, I just don't think you had a real mature or a real understanding of threat intelligence in a lot of these organizations. So what do you all think, guys? What is the big trend? What are we going to see more of 2023? One of my predictions is we're going to have another celebrity vulnerability of some sort. There's going to be some driver, some executable, something somewhere that if you pull it, the whole linchpin of the Internet falls apart. And we're all back in the caveman days. So what is that you think is going to be the next one? I mean, GPS satellites, for instance, what happens when we lose GPS satellites? What do we think is the next big threat vector?
3: I would say supply chain, in my opinion, is going to be the name of the game, Josh. I feel like where we are right now globally, based on you know many nations kind of at war right now, large nations actually provide a tremendous amount of resources globally feel like that's going to be the next thing that kind of takes us to a very hard point in time and that that I feel like it's going to give us a uh, retroactive thinking of how we can kind of protect these things moving forward. But I feel like the supply chain globally is going to be what is what's targeted really next. Fuel, food, that's going to be a big hit. Waterways, all of these things I feel like are all going to be like prime. You know, everyone wants to level up. You know, Every threat actor wants to kind of get it to that next level. Every threat actor has their intent and has their intentions as far as what they want to do. Everybody's kind of grown accustomed to the ransomware based style of attacks to where people now are kind of understanding how to adjust, how to augment, how to back up and and what they're going to do. Where now I believe the next area is going to be actual real disruption on on a global scale that's more noticeable and more affected. You know, outside of seeing price rises, I feel like it's going to really hit people, not just in a pocket, but in a day to day living process.
1: We had a really interesting time period here. I got stuck with all this air travel problem. So we had the Southwest Airlines computer meltdown, right? We have the FAA computers go down at the same time. I'm also heard from a, a guy on LinkedIn. I'm not, I haven't verified these stories, but you like had Air Canada and another airliner go down too as well. I mean, when, when do you start looking at these events and going, is this systemic of old computer systems that people didn't spend money and time to replace? Or is this where we're actually seeing cyber warfare here? We're actually seeing malicious activity? Is this part of that Russian response? I mean, in the beginning, when 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 the war first kicked off from a U.S. perspective, didn't see a real uptake in cyber war. It's almost like they were distracted with Ukraine, and there was some government attacks that were there that was facilitating as part of, like Aaron was saying, prepping the battle space, so to speak, for your operations. But it just seemed that they were real focused on that, and not some of the other traditional areas. Does that make sense? I mean, if you
2: want me to do the standard Intel guy, I'm going to scare you real quick. We didn't see them, which means that maybe they didn't need to. Maybe they're already in the areas of infrastructure they need to be. There didn't need to be any prep. We didn't need to see them coming in because maybe they're already implanted in there. It would be smart to do so if you were a nation state and you knew at some point you were going to have some sort of conflict with another major nation state, you would already prep yourself. You would already be sitting um, in the areas that you needed to. And so, in fact, I would say the lack of movement that we saw from Russia when these things intensified, that is actually something on the government side as an advisor. And I know that this is happening within um, the intelligence community. I would be immediately advising commanders and stakeholders That's actually more concerning than not. It's very concerning that we're not seeing them because it suggests that they don't need to implant. We need to start looking closer at our infrastructure. But to Nate's point about the supply chain, the roadmap was laid out for everybody during the pandemic. When it comes to nation state threats, they actually saw how every country can get pinched in which way. By how prices rose, how people reacted. And I mean, a really good one would be, you know, you couldn't buy a new car in the United States for a while, just because of the, you know, chip manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So there's actually been a roadmap for adversarial nations, like specifically, if you want to look at the United States, well, I know how to pinch them. This thing leads to this, then it leads to that, that whole roadmap's been laid out and it's a perfect and, and wonderful target. And to the point that you just made, I'll tie it together, a lot of which is operated by very old systems that can systemically break and almost waterfall down. And that's me taking the approach of, let's just say that all of these airlines were just happen to be computer glitches. I'm suspicious of it, but that's also my job to be suspicious and ask a lot of hard questions. I have seen the pattern, Josh, I'll acknowledge that. But because I respect your program, I'm not going to put my tinfoil hat on and start (laughs) telling you all the things that it could be. But that is also another way that you have to approach intelligence. You have to ask every single question and then disprove whether or not it's possible. You should be a little paranoid when working with intelligence.
1: Yeah, it's all good points. And I think understanding how you you see some um, coincidence, you don't necessarily see correlation, but you see some coincidence that, hey, this big system goes down and affects air travel. Then this big one goes down and affects air travel. And then others affect an air travel. You know, it'd be one thing if the McDonald's computer system went down. I wouldn't be so panicked, right? one McDonald's goes down, but it's not the airline. But when you have multiple airline industry and how it can just devastate the traveling public. I mean, I was stuck in, uh, in Newark for three days. You were going to tell me three days before my next flight all because of those computer systems. And yet you wonder, how did we lose the ability to fly a plane without a scheduling system? Okay, so it's one thing that this says what pilots go where, but you would think if there's somebody you would call that has a clipboard that says Jet 445, you could go take, go fly to Houston, you know, and he can fly the thing. It doesn't need a a whole computer scheduling program. It's almost like if your, your Microsoft Outlook calendaring went down, how you would just be useless the whole day. Well, no, somehow we'd figure out how to still meet with each other. Uh, you just would figure that airlining would be a little bit more resilient than just relying on a computer system for that. I think that's where we are from a society perspective. Huh?
2: Well, that's Absolutely. true. You know, it makes things easier, right? And it, it makes things cheaper and it makes them run faster. But that's part of the problem, right? Is we do become very reliant on that technology, but we also need to build in redundancies. To your earlier point, though, when you say coincidence, I used to yell at my soldiers, and so I feel like you're using this against me. I used to yell at my soldiers that there's no coincidences in intelligence.
1: Sounds like a paranoid thing, uh, an intelligence <laughs> guy would say. When you don't have the intelligence background and you have more of a network security background, sometimes it's a little harder to understand collection, dissemination, curation, all the different things that you do to make something actionable. A lot of times they think of it as like an antivirus signature. You just sit here and it uploads and it's able to tell me when bad happens. And I think that's just such a rudimentary way of thinking of intelligence. What I liked about cybersecurity coming from the Marine Corps is just so many aspects of it match the military mindset from a, you have a defensive position of this, you have an offensive, there's an actual enemy that's coming there trying to smash you and take your stuff. Uh, So it was much more fascinating, I found, than IT where It was some error. I'd have to go look in TechNet to figure out what component was broken, and let me patch that or or reg entry to fix that. To me, that wasn't fun and exciting. But taking the dimension of warfare in the cyber realm perfectly matches that because there's a complete understanding about that so a hardening of my defenses on my asr my attack surface reduction how do i reduce attack surface points that may have that the enemy could get a foothold on there uh how do i think like an attacker how do an attacker recon what is it stuff that they can see about my executives that they can use to fish can they see my executives home numbers you know any of that kind of stuff that would give an intelligence officer especially an offensive intelligence officer and understanding on how to target my organization is what I would want to go after. Uh, that would mean sanitizing the website for email addresses that they don't need to have. I think in some cases, it's changing SMTP addresses up so it's not easily guessable. And there's a number of different things that we can make harder. When I was in the banking financial institutions, we had a lot of ACH fraud. We had uh, people would log on to the wire transfer system and they would transfer it out. Now, the first time that happened, I get brought in by uh, the CEO and the CIO, and they said, look, we need to do an assessment. It looks like we keep getting hit on the wire transfer system. So went did an assessment. Notice there's no MFA authentication. You can log on from anywhere. You know, they probably got fished. Their credentials are gone. Somebody's logging on somewhere else, initiating the transfers. So what we did is implemented MFA, did RSA tokens on wire initiation. That way you couldn't initiate a wire without a token. They said, okay, that won't break our processes too much. That's fine. We can do that. Then the attacker was still able to grab the credentials and steal money again. Like, God, how did they steal the token? So we put another token on uh, one for initiation, separate username and password for authorization and release. OK, we're going to prevent this. There's no way they're going to be stealing money out of the ACH system. Again. Nope. One hundred thousand dollars went out the door. Crap. <laughs> what happened? Why does this keep happening? So I went down to the wire transfer department myself and sat there and watched the manager. And I said, okay, initiate a wire, show me you're doing it. And she grabs the paper that came in through the fax and she goes to initiate the wire and everything's great from the initiation standpoint. And I said, okay, so they use the token. Okay, I see you initiated. So how do you authorize it? She reaches an address, she grabs another token with a little piece of paper on it and she logs on with that token and approves it right there on the same desktop. Right. Well, her desktop was compromised. The attacker saw the cr- every time she did it. So she violated a process, which said there had to be two separate people, one for initiation, one for release. Yet that person was on vacation. So that person gave them the token and the user password. So the one person was sitting there doing wire transfers and we couldn't figure out what was happening. Why? Because they had a process breakdown. They violated, had no idea they were violating that, that process there. And so I thought it was really interesting. Uh, how these attackers learn to get around them. A second scam I, I ran across is my nephew was, uh, gonna get a rental property here in Charlotte. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he was getting a rental property and he saw it on, um, one of those Zillow sites and it says, you can get this property. It's, uh, I think it was $1,500 a month for rent. And it looked like a really good deal for three bedroom, $1,500 for rent. So he replied to the ad uh, and said, hey, I want to go see it. And he gives him a link. Here, go sign up for this. And it'll give you a token code to actually get into the place. So they do that. He gets into the place and he sees it. He really likes it. He wants to give a down payment for it. And so he gets the standard rental contract, says, Uncle Josh, I really, I want you to take a look at this just to make sure it's it's good and it's solid. And so I started looking through the contract and it looks like a, just a regular contract. It looks normal from a T's and E's perspective. Looks like uh, anything somebody would sign, but I saw the name and I asked, I mean, so who owns that property? I mean, one of my biggest concerns is that you rent the property out and somebody doesn't have the money and the AC breaks and you're, you're screwed for like a week, uh, with no air conditioner because the guy has no money to fix it. And so I much rather a, um, a company that does that. That way I know they have money. They're going to replace the thing. So I always thought it was really, really important to do that. So I start looking up the guy who, what's his background? Where's he at? Let me talk to him. Uh, but one thing his girlfriend told me that keyed me in, she says, I saw the exact same property for like $300, $400 less on Craigslist or $300, $400 more on Redfin. So one of the official sites there. And I said, that's really strange. Same address, same everything. It's the same address, same everything. It's, it's like three, $400 less off of, uh, off of Craigslist. So we call, we said, you know, that's really strange. Why would it be these? two different prices. So I started talking to the guy and long story short to find out it was a complete scam. He didn't own that place. So what he did is he put a Craigslist mapping up there of that property. When you ask to get to the place, he actually sends you to the real real estate place to get the code for it, to unlock it. And you fill out the information, sends the code. So when you get into the property, you assume the guy owns it because he just gave you a code to get into it. It was the ultimate way of proving uh, in Israel that you had that come to find out that was all a scam and he was going to have $2,000 transferred. We never would have seen it again. It was just a really horrible incident. nearly wiped him out from that perspective. Now, I went back into some old uh, news that I saw and there was some threat intelligence that said that there were scams related to these housing things on Craigslist and a lookout for them and and all that kind of stuff. I'm only thinking was, what if I wasn't there to, A, ask all these inquisitive questions, right? But B, that there's information out there related to those scams. How do you get that when these situations are occurring? And it was just a real interesting thing to kind of focus on. Like, for instance, when you have a third party that provides you services, it's really hard to figure out. Are they compromised? Are they doing security right? Are they going to notify us when this happens? How all that kind of works out. It just seems to be a real challenge in enterprises today. Would y'all agree to that? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Third-party stuff is fantastic. And you know, it's another good program that needs to be stood up. Who are your suppliers? Who are your vendors? Who has connections into your network? And how are you monitoring in case they get compromised so you can Shut that down. You can stop email traffic. You can stop incoming traffic uh, until they assure you that they've been cleared and everything's fine. You don't want to become a victim of a victim.
1: Yeah, Nathan, so, yeah, actually. With this a lot on third party incidents, where we had our incident response team at one of our big clients were constantly engaged with third parties more than first party events. They didn't have enough time for first party events that were occurring in their own network because we had so many third-party events that were occurring. You had ransomware connections. And so we had to get them, if you remember, Nate, to think back of how do you segment just like a ship in the Navy and it gets hit by a torpedo, you have these waterhead bulkheads. And how do you seal that part of the ship off so the rest doesn't sync. And when you look at it from a network perspective, that's easier said than done. Everything's connected uh, any, any in many ways. So you, especially in cloud environment, you've got to be very careful to understand, how do I shut this off? How do I prevent this third party's connectivity? And should I think about this before I even set them up? I, I mean, I shouldn't have an incident and then go, I wonder how we're all connected. What should I do to protect it? Because some of it, if you remember, if they were ransomware, we were shutting off email because we didn't want ransomware distributed via email. We also had secure FTP jobs where they were moving data and third parties were moving data. So now we had to consider that potentially compromised. What else did we have? We actually had network connections and API connections to different systems, as well as like third-party landing, like S3 buckets uh, that were occurring. So it became a tremendous challenge, I think in many ways to really get our hands around it, right?
3: What I would say, Josh, and kind of piggybacking off the initial comments, was uh, when it came to taking on more third-party events and incidents more than our own, that's a correct statement. What I will say is that our program that we had in place was extremely mature. We had a tremendous amount of use case development, analysts' understanding of what they should be paying attention to, and that took a lot of time and effort to kind of put that into play. To where, yes, we did have a tremendous amount of hand working with third parties, following through as an incident commander, understanding, you know, what was affected, getting TTPs, implementing, you know, countermeasures within our own environment to mitigate things that we may or may not see. But what I will say is that we were so quick about getting things like that in play and on the road from third parties that, you know, by the time you knew it, we were already well and above understanding, you know, we, we have a process down that's tight from blocking off a certain network aspects, understanding, you know, what the inbound outbound looks like, understanding what the potential footprint of their level of attack would look like, you know, leveraging our threat intel capability. I look at Aaron because he's the guy that informs me. Cause when I hear about a third party, I immediately look at my threat intel analyst and, and I say, what do we have on the dark web? What are we seeing when it comes to these things? I need to understand because I can sit and wait all day long. For a third party to get in contact with me, knowing very well they're probably going through an investigation. The very okay. fact that I'm hearing about it right now tells me this probably happened two weeks, a month. You know, so understanding, you know, how we can take a reactionary base from that position and moving forward with that and investigating what the near real time look like, what are the events look like, and that it really takes you, really showcases your maturity model in that moment.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The thing about the third parties is that there's no contextualization from it. You know, okay, it's a third party. They do three, four things for us. They do some things to some data and they send it back. Or we even have more complexity where we have a fourth party. It's like a repository cloud system for a third party, but we have no contracts with them. They're a fourth party. And then when we're dealing with these third and fourth parties, they're in the middle of an incident, so they don't even talk to you. And you're trying to get information for your management team, but they're not even going to talk to you. And when they do, they're going to wait for their lawyers and it's going to be two, three days from now. So you can't even quantify the risk back to your management team because these guys are ghosting you because they don't even know what to say. And, and we noticed that, right, of where when they're in the middle of an incident, these incident commanders and these IR security guys you've been working with for a long time, all of a sudden shut up and they they're not saying anything. And it's why they're under legal constraints. They can't say anything. And then what do you do? Do I proactively shut that service down? I don't know really the situation. I'm going to be impacting business. And so now you have cybersecurity guys making massive business decisions uh, at the same time. But what needs to be cut off? What doesn't? I do think there needs to be a holistic approach that says when we start segmenting and shutting down, these are the things that will be impacted. And let's go test it. Like, let's really start shutting down. Take a night, a weekend or whatever and that's not really big coming from the network security world where I come from. They don't like shut networks down. But actually walking through that where we do cipher that off, let's see what breaks. Can we operate in this mode for, what, an hour or two hours? We can't because the FTP servers won't update or something to that effect. You at least know the risk posture what's happening. But I think there's too many organizations do not take the approach of actively testing their countermeasures. And let's actually block things over. Let's fail over to backup links let's assume the firewall is going to crap itself. Let's go over to the secondary. How do we reroute? I think some of these situations where we can easily plan for them doesn't get planned because people don't have time to do their day job, let alone do advanced planning for things they think might never happen. Um, But it does seem like we do need to put that more into tabletop exercises where it's not just this incident ha- happened with this person came in or we have this activity, but this major thing got knocked out too. So work with cyber and the disaster recovery team at the same time. How would we, how we do that? Because recovery of the system can be completely different than we want from a security perspective. We don't want that system coming up now because of X, Y, and Z, but because of their model on how to get something up, I need that up A, I need that up uh, in, in B or whatever it may be. So I think there needs to be a little bit more consolidated uh, or considerate approach and then how do we actually move like a flock of birds? I mean, you and I would have been in situations where we had big enterprises and they have 15, 20 different people. And it was so distributed in so many different people, just getting them to operate in a consolidated manner in a critical situation without requiring 15 different tickets for 15 different teams. It, it was just been a massive problem. So I think as we start to look at how do you operationalize this, Companies need to ask themselves, do they even effectively communicate themselves when normally? Am I distributed? Is my network team I have to open a ticket? If I need a proxy block or I need a firewall block, is that really just a ticket? Is that streamlined for you to actually action something really quick? And I just see some of them are not. It's more of a responsibility, bureaucratic ticket passing than it is a true functional org. You know, does that make sense?
3: Absolutely, Josh. And, and you, you raised a really great, fun topic that, you know, I want to just touch on real quick is there was a client that I supported there for a while, very mature when it came to their fusion center, and they had an on-site red team that I helped stand up. And what I will say is having that capability from just talking about red team specifically, which was informed by threat Intel as far as what the capabilities of what threat Actors were doing, we would normally on the fly... Anytime we would get any sort of proof of concept on the street, we would usually have a mirrored environment where we could test near real time whether or not our defense and death posture actually works. I'll literally be in front of an executive director of a SOC, Cyberpuging Center, a CISO, and they want to know, am I affected by this? And having that near real time data of here's why you do, here's why you don't. Here's what I was able to do. Here's what I'm able to see from these various attack vectors, external, internal, and showcase the various styles of visibility from that aspect. And I think that really shows and attests, you know, making those critical answers on, well, do I need to patch within the next 24 hours or do I have 72? Because those time frames matter in those moments. If I can tell somebody we can take a mild breath, we still need to push. But the complexity in which this style of attack has to happen is very complex, and we have a really good posture. We're monitoring. We're ahead of the curve. Threat intel informing us on near real time data points when it comes to TTPs, IOCs, if, if you will, and we stay ahead of the game that way. And which is, allows engineers, on site leaders, you know, production environments to come to the table and actually put a realization timetable to to remediate.
1: Yeah. Well, I I see how much we've been in some of these big C-certs where we have a a celebrity vulnerability and how the IT, the patch management team, the sysadmins are just so grateful for having threat informed attack surface reduction functionality because everything before was critical to them. Uh, This needs to happen right away. And so if everything's critical, then nothing's critical. And so since there was no vetting and nobody ever said, well, actually, you could take the next couple of days to do this because the threat is this. When you just take it from an immature perspective, just say just because it says high on this rating from whoever provided it, right, that this is vulnerable and this needs to be there. That does not mean that that's really a high risk to you. It's just mean in general, it's a high risk. How it is reflected to you takes analysis and takes somebody to take a look at. I remember saying, yes, we do have about a week or two. We're not going to push you hard on this one. And it was so appreciative. Like, okay, normally people would just push us for everything and just beat us. If it's red, just push it. But for you to actually tell us, I would back off. You don't have to go so hard. They felt there was real intelligence and real partnership with them to help save them, to focus on what's real important and not to say everything's a fire. And I think that's where when you have those years of experience doing cybersecurity, that's what the benefit to your customers, you can say, yeah, I think we have a little time in this. We don't have time in that. I'll be honest. We need to push over in this area and having that experience really helps to, you know, give that kind of strategic vision that they need, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, guys, I really appreciate y'all's time today. I think we covered a lot in threat intelligence. What's good. What's not talked about some of the kind of the challenges, the celebrity vulnerabilities, threat intelligence, how to kind of look at it. And I think we're going to have more kind of sessions on this on the broadcast. We also look forward to having Aaron starting a uh, series where we'll do threat intelligence briefings before each of these podcasts. And, And the objective here really is to empower you, the listener, with actionable information that you can go back to your leadership team. We can start to talking to them about what's important, what's not, It's not about what is important in your future here based on some sales news articles you saw that some firewall vendor showed you that you must have this cool shiny box, but really what kind of programs, what kind of systems, what kind of mindset, how should you approach these problems? It's not about the tool. I'll tell you that right now. It's not always about the tool. Do you have capabilities built into a tool that help you make decisions better, export data better, manage it better, connect it to other things better? It's just greater value. Absolutely. But that's not always the thing you should be focusing on. I think the thing you should be focusing on is having a real good understanding of what your threat intelligence program is and is not, what it encompasses, and then using what tool sets after that once you kind of have your requirements down. And I'm sure Aaron can have a whole class just on the different tips that are out there, the different ways technology uses to aggregate things, and then hopefully we'll get uh, more in that here in the future. The next episode that we're looking at is going to be on incident response and uh, detection analytics. So it's bringing in expertise to talk about how do we, how do we use intelligence? What is the analytical life cycle? How do I develop them? How do I create a library? How do I deprecate old analytics? So I don't have false positives anymore. How do you keep up with that kind of life cycle? And then incident response. We're going to have ahead of our incident response capability. We're also looking at a senior IR director for one of our clients. That can give some greater perspective on the threats that we're discovering and what some of the obfuscation techniques we're seeing attackers have and what
0: should we be focused on.
1: Until next time, everybody have a good day and uh, happy cyber hunt.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.